Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger is the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger, thank you very much for being with me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank, thank you very much for having me. Victor, you suggest in your book, Delete, the virtue of forgetting in the digital age, that the balance between remembering and forgetting is reversed due to digital storage technologies. Once it was normal to forget, now the default is remembering. Uh, talk to us about that. Well, for all of human history, uh, forgetting was incredibly easy for us human beings. It was built into our uh, brains. Biologically, we forget most of what we experience every day. Remembering has been hard and difficult for us, and that's why uh, for all of human history, we humans have tried to hold on and remember the things that were important to us, uh, that um, were dear to us, uh, the events that uh, we cared about. Uh, but uh, for the most part, 80%, 90%, 95% of what we were exposed every day, we would forget. And with good reason, because through forgetting, our brain rids itself of excess memory, of information uh, of past events and past thoughts that we don't need anymore, that are no longer relevant to us. In the digital age, that balance has become reversed. And so today, the digital tools that we use, by default, remember, store, uh, and hold ready for easy retrieval uh, the information that we expose to them, while it is very hard for us to delete stuff, uh, and forgetting, therefore, becomes costly. Uh, so we have reversed this balance from the default of forgetting to a default of remembering, and that, I believe, has a number of very problematic consequences. Mm -hmm. And mainly it is due to this new technology that we call digital storage. Yes, it is due to uh, digital storage um, for three reasons. Uh, first, uh, digitization made it possible to use the same devices, storage devices and processing devices, for all kinds of different types of information, whether it's text or voice or video or image. And because we can use the same devices, we can use the same network, we can use the same hard disks, um, the, the efficiency of these devices increases. Uh, that means that the storage prices have come down dramatically. Digital storage is incredibly cheap these days. It's 50 million times cheaper than only a few decades ago. In fact, today it is cheaper to store an image uh, digitally than to store it in an analog, printed out fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, combine that with easy retrieval of the information that we have stored in our digital devices through better software and better tools, as well as a global network called the internet through which we can access vast amounts of digital storage very easily from the comfort of our home. We don't have to travel anywhere and we can do it 24 seven. That together creates a very different reality uh, of uh, digital life uh, than we were used to in the analog days. Okay, if I have a recorded video or audio or even uh, an image on a digital device, I can delete it anytime. So it means I am in control. But once I upload it into cyberspace, it is not in my control anymore. And most of the times, I even don't know where it is stored. And I may never be able to delete it. Is this correct? Well, yes, in, an, in a sense, it is correct. And for quite a, a long time, maybe the last 20 years or so, we would be processing information mostly locally in our PC, for example. Um, but there is a new paradigm that is arising, uh, the paradigm of network computing. There's a whole generation called digital natives out there 
who have grown up in a world in which there is an abundance of bandwidth connection to the internet, in which there is an abundance of connectivity, and the internet is never far uh, away. And in such a new connected paradigm, um, users, the digital natives, are continuously sharing information with each other, uploading information and so forth. And as they do this, they begin to lose control over the information that they share. But this is going to be taken one step further in the coming years as we move the information processing even, the manipulation of text, the manipulation of images um, from our local computers to what is called the internet, the internet cloud. Uh, and that means that as soon as we do this, we lose control over our information even faster than before. So the internet remembers what we upload. What else the internet remembers and uh, how does it do it? The internet remembers, period. Um, so for example, um, Google um, operates a very effective search engine. But very few people know that Google stores and therefore remembers each and every search query it ever received. And it receives in excess of a, mil of a billion a day. Each and every search query Google receives, it remembers. And it remembers each and every search result you or I ever clicked on. That's an enormous amount of information. Every time we interact or transact online, whether we buy a book or even only look at a book on an online bookstore, that online bookstore will remember that and perhaps will use it to make book recommendations to us, but perhaps also make that information available to some other uh, commercial information processors. Mm -hmm. Wherever we, wherever we walk, wherever we um, move uh, in our virtual space, wherever when whatever we do online, we leave behind digital traces and these digital traces become remembered and become uh, kept uh, for a very long time. And a very important point is that digitally stored information uh, when viewed at a later date may not reveal the appropriate context. So a piece of information may be misunderstood uh, if the correct context is not available. This can be very misleading. Indeed. Um, if we um, compare this to the old-fashioned library, in the old-fashioned library, we would find the right section. Uh, and the section itself, whether it's the history section or the science section, or the fiction section, the mystery section, would already provide a context. And then we would take out the book and we would begin to read and to browse it, and that would provide us more context. Uh, compare this to the digital world where we take out just one sentence, or even half of a sentence of a book, uh, and look at it. It's completely taken out of a context. And we then begin to interpret it without its context. A Google search presents the search results taken out of their natural contexts. And we are then trying to interpret them, making sense of them. And it is quite clear to everybody that as we do this, we may quite frequently misinterpret what we see and therefore misjudge the information that we receive. In your book, you talk about uh, Stacy Snyder uh, and how a single image uploaded for the fun of it can ruin someone's life. Uh, what happened uh, to Stacy Snyder? Stacy Snyder uh, was a student in the United States who wanted to become a teacher. And Stacy had completed all of her coursework and was looking forward to getting her teacher's certificate when suddenly she was informed that she would not become a teacher because her behavior was unbecoming of a teacher. And when she asked what her behavior was, she was pointed initially to a photograph that she had uploaded onto the internet 
that showed her with a cap um, and a cup, um, and it had a caption called Drunken Pirate. And because she had a cup, plastic cup on the hand, and the caption was Drunken Pirate, the authorities said this was obviously uh, depicting her drinking alcohol and therefore would, through that image being available on the internet, induce school children to drink alcohol. And that was an unbecoming behavior of a teacher and therefore she was denied her teacher's certificate. And when she heard about it, she said, oh my God, you know, let me take the picture down. But it was too late because at that time, the picture had already been indexed by search engine and crawled by web crawlers and cached by the Internet Archive, and it was just too late. As, as much as Tracy wanted that episode, that image, to be forgotten, the Internet didn't let her. Similarly, a comment posted on a blog in a depressed or sad state of mind can ruin your career. Oh, yes, there is a current case uh, of a blogger who uh, said something negative about um, his mother-in-law uh, and has gotten into hot water uh, on that. But there are many more serious cases as well. Uh, a woman in Britain lost her job because she commented on Facebook that her job was boring, uh, and that uh, comment was picked up by her employer. Um, there is a, uh, a lawyer in the United States who... Uh, um, has been misreported as being involved in a criminal case and he can't get that information out of the internet and he's always mistaken um, for, for, for this other person. There is uh, a case of a, a, a psychotherapist who confessed in a scientific journal uh, that 40 years earlier in the 1960s he took LSD and uh, because that academic journal became uh, available online and was searched and indexed by Google um, when this psychotherapist in his late 60s crossed into the United States, the immigration officer on the border, the Canadian-American border, Googled him and found this article and then uh, the confession that he had taken drugs uh, 40 years earlier. And therefore this 60-some-year-old, almost 70-year-old psychotherapist was barred from entering the United States for drug abuse in the 1960s. Um, he had long forgotten about what he, what he had written or what he had done in the 1960s. It had no relevance to his present situation, to his present uh, frame of mind. He hadn't taken drugs in many decades. But the internet wouldn't let forget that event, and authorities are now able to query the internet and to expose our past misdeeds at a level of clarity and detail and recall that has never been the case ever before in human history. Let us uh, talk about our inability to delete and control the information once it is uploaded. Why most of the times it is impossible to delete what we upload? Well, the moment information is fungible, there is nothing that... Um, makes it easily controllable. A physical object, like a, a chair, is physically controllable. If I sit on the chair, nobody else can sit on it. But information is fluid. If I pass on information to you, I have to trust you that you keep that information to yourself, but I don't know whether you do it. You might pass it on to a friend of yours or your wife, um, and I am at your whim uh, uh, on whether you keep your promise to uh, keep the information to yourself or whether you break that promise and break that trust and pass that information on to somebody else. Uh, and what to me is quite remarkable is that, that as we share information, very few people realize how much we are dependent upon others keeping their trust and keeping their promise in handling the information well. In the analog days, there was a lot of passing on of information and 
violating promises and trust as well. But nobody owned a printing press, and so rumors would spread slowly in the analog days by word of mouth. Nowadays on the internet, rumors spread extremely quickly, and most importantly, rumors don't die because the internet does not forget. So if we are not able to delete or control information that we upload, it reflects a power shift. And in your book, you label it as power problem or power challenge. Talk to us about that. Yes, well, as others have a lot of information about us, even information that we we don't even know that that existed out there. So if Google has a list of all the search terms that I searched for the last two years or the last six months, they know a, a lot about me. They know when I was looking for a new car, when I was researching some travel, uh, when I was looking perhaps for new love. They know all about that because they know what I searched when on the internet. As they accumulate this enormous amount of information, they also accumulate informational power. They know something about me that others don't, and that I might even have forgotten about it. And so as this power, informational power increases, the power of Google increases. The power of many of these information aggregators increases. And as people realize the enormous amount of power these information aggregators have because so much of information is being shared on the internet, one possible, very likely uh, consequence and reaction is that we stop sharing information online. In fact, President Obama uh, advised school children that they should stop sharing information on Facebook and, and other social uh, networking applications um, uh, because it might haunt them, come to haunt them in the future. But if we stop sharing information, we actually deny ourselves uh, a lot of the values of these wonderful tools on the internet. We basically um, become self-censoring. Uh, we silence ourselves because we are afraid what might happen to the information that we share uh, in the future. And so the result might then be a society that has the tools for open, robust, democratic debate, but where the people, the citizens, have become afraid of the con potential consequences of open debate in their personal futures, and so they don't participate in open debate anymore. And that would be very sad indeed. It is very interesting to note that on few social websites, once you upload something, you cannot permanently delete it. You can just mark it for deletion, but it stays there. Indeed, that is true. And um, one of the things that I think uh, social networking sites like Facebook and others need to be looking into is to... Um, re-establish some of the trust that they have lost with their users by guaranteeing and ensuring and being very clear uh, that their users have the ability to delete the information that they have shared. Um, it is a central, a core element of trust that a lot of the users nowadays on social networking sites demand um, after it has become uh, common knowledge how privacy-invasive Facebook and others really are. Many smartphones that we use today are equipped with a digital camera. And with one click, you can take a snap. And with just one more click, the image can be uploaded to your website. It is so simple. So while having good time with close friends, you may take a snap, upload it, and later you may regret about it. Yes, indeed. You might share a photograph uh, online uh, that uh, the next day you regret. You might have shared it 
while you were intoxicated, for example. Uh, and the next day you wake up in the morning uh, with a headache and then you look at the online photos and you see that you uploaded the photograph that you shouldn't have. Uh, mm -hmm. But at that stage, um, somebody else might have grabbed it and, and uploaded it to a different site and it might have gotten completely out of your control. In fact, that's, that's quite likely. Uh, but more importantly, suppose you're in a bar or in a pub uh, and somebody else takes a photo of you. You might not even notice it. And that other person then uploads the photo to an online photo store like Flickr. And then the photo sits there. Somebody else by accident may look at that photograph, recognize you, and then tag you on that photograph. That means label that photograph with your name. Now, by doing that, suddenly that photograph that is linked to your name. So if somebody is looking for you on Flickr, that photograph will pop up. You didn't take the photograph. You didn't know that you were in the photograph. You had nothing to do with it. But suddenly you are exposed there and you can't change it. You can't take the name tag down and you can't take the photo down because you don't own the name tag and you don't own the photograph. And so you're exposed without any control whatsoever over it. That was only possible. That's only been possible through the ability to upload lots of photographs and the ability of others to tag people in photographs. It makes photographs accessible, but it also exposes us to this risk of permanent surveillance. Mm -hmm. What other problems does this almost perfect digital memory pose? Let me give you another example of the, the smartphone um, uh, situation that you um, sketched out uh, just a minute or two ago. Um, if I take a photograph with my smartphone, chances are that it will not only include image information when the image was taken, but also where the image was taken. Because many smartphones now have a GPS receiver in there, and so longitude and latitude is being stored as well. And that information is shared as I share the photograph online. In fact, there is a wonderful application out online now on the internet that mines the millions of photos that have been posted on Flickr and shows where people, let's say in London, have taken photographs, and from what angle they have photographed certain things. Um, so you don't need to look at the photograph. It is sufficient to look at where the photograph was taken to reveal where a particular person was at a particular moment in time. And suddenly you can create profiles of people as they walked around and took photographs where they were over the course of time. That surveillance at a level that we haven't seen before and authoritarian regimes uh, would have loved to have such a pervasive surveillance structure in place. We have put that in place completely voluntarily. And I think we need to be thinking very hard about this. Mm -hmm. Do you think that mobile telephone networks remember a lot about us as well? Mobile telephone networks do remember a lot about us. Fortunately, mobile phone operators don't share that information yet with others. Uh, that has some um, competitive and market reasons. But that non-sharing policy may change in the future. And even if they don't share um, right now, a lot of the information of which cell towers we use and so forth, all the information they have. Whenever we leave behind the digital trace, whether we upload a photograph, whether we uh, put a status update on Facebook, whether we tweet, whether we put a Twitter update out, the longitude and latitude, the time and date and where we were is remembered then not by the telecom company alone, but by Twitter, by Facebook, by Flickr, and if we combine that, even without the telecom company, we have a pretty good profile of a person as this person moved through the physical world. 
there are a number of projects where people are researching the concepts of digitally recording their entire lives what is your take on that well th there are a number of projects the most famous one is gordon bell's life logging project gordon bell is a very famous and highly accomplished software engineer who is now a research fellow at microsoft research and he has digitized as much information about his uh, life uh, and his past as he could get a hold of. So he has archived and digitized all of his emails. He has made a snapshot of each web page that he looked at, and he's kept that. He has digitized all of his notebooks, all of his medical records. Um, and he is wearing a little device around his neck uh, a little box looks like a cigarette box. And this device takes a photograph, a digital image, every couple of minutes or whenever another person approaches Gordon Bell. And so he has amassed 120,000 photographs as well. He's also recording every of his telephone conversations. And, and so over time, he has amassed uh, a couple of hundred gigabytes of information that he keeps on his laptop computer. Um, now, Gordon Bell's quite adamant that he does not want to share this information with others. He just wants to keep this information to remind himself uh, of it. There's some problems with that, um, uh, but uh, with respect to the power issue, um, if he doesn't share it with anybody, he should be fine. The problem is, if he doesn't want to share it with anybody, um, he will have to stay away from Facebook and Flickr and Google and all the social networking sites and the, all the sites that track what we are doing because as we engage with them, we already are sharing information. Uh, and Gordon Bell will only be able to keep control over his information if he becomes a digital recluse. That is, if he disconnects himself from the network. The moment he connects himself to the network, He's exposing himself to tracking, and he's exposing himself to the amassment and the agglomeration of the information about him that we'll see all over. My guest today is Victor Meyer Schweinberger. Professor Victor Meyer Schweinberger is the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. Victor, you present six possible solutions to deal with the challenges posed by digital remembering. One solution that I would like to discuss first is cognitive adjustment. Now, the digital remembering is just like uh, any other technology. And like previous technical developments from the invention of writing to printing press, radio and television, the society always successfully adjusted itself. So why, in your view, it is difficult to adjust this time? You know, going into this research, I had high hopes that cognitive adjustment would be the solution for the future, that eventually we would just be fine with a world in which uh, a lot of us is being remembered. And that over time, humans would just become more forgiving. Um, but then, as I learned more about how our brain works and how we process uh, and we evaluate uh, past experiences, as well as information that we hear about or read about others, I became quite hesitant. The reason for that is that um, when we are confronted with an information of our own or somebody else's past, um, we have difficulties putting that in a timely dimension. So if I have a job candidate in front of me and I have Googled that job candidate and I found out that that job candidate had a drunk driving citation, a drunk driving problem 15 years ago. The fact that this person had a drunk driving problem sticks in my mind. And it is very hard for me to discard that. 
even though it's been 15 years ago, and the person in front of me might be a completely different person from the person that 15 years ago had a drunk drive problem. But the way our brain works is that when we retrieve information successfully, our brain thinks it's important enough. And so we hold on to it. Because if it were unimportant, our brain would have biologically forgotten it. And therefore, cognitive adjustment would require us to deliberately be able to rewire how our brain thinks. And I don't think we humans can do that very easily, at least not in my lifespan. And so I became very hesitant to see cognitive adjustment as a potential solution to the problem of comprehensive remembering. Before we discuss the final revival of forgetting technique that you suggest, would you briefly describe other solutions that you discuss in your book? Uh, and what part of the problem do these solutions address? Sure. Um, so we have privacy laws in place. Um, and that's the obvious starting point um, to deal with this informational privacy problem. But privacy laws have not been used by individuals very much, even though they're on the books and have been on the books for a number of decades. Uh, there are a number of reasons for why we haven't used information privacy rights very much. Um, uh, one is that it is costly to, uh, to go before court and to uh, have them enforced. But the matter of fact is, however hard politicians and legislators try to, enhance, to, to make privacy laws better and enhance them and improve them, uh, they have failed, uh, by and large, and information privacy laws have been uh, a toothless paper tiger. Um, there is another way by which we can deal with the problem, and that is by hoping for a technological solution. Uh, so some have advocated that uh, perhaps we should have digital devices uh, that would make sure that our images, our inform personal information would only be passed on to the people we trust and would be uh, kept uh, within the parameters of our control. In a way, it is a, a version of um, um, copy protection schemes for, for personal information. Uh, much as we have copy protection built into um, some DVDs uh, and some other content today, uh, we could have copy protection built into our personal information so that it cannot be replicated without our knowledge. Um, but that would require a global system of surveillance and control to make sure that nobody is taking our personal information away and reusing it some, uh, in some other context. Uh, so we would need uh, a global surveillance network in order to ensure our personal privacy. That's almost absurd. And it's like asking the prisoners to guard the prison. And I don't think that's going to be a solution either. So while all these possible solutions privacy laws, cognitive adjustment, uh, technical solutions like uh, copy protection for personal information may deal with some small aspect of the forgetting problem. I don't think we have any silver bullet at this point in time or any comprehensive strategy to, to deal with the problem, the challenges posed by uh, permanent digital memory. So finally, uh, you advocate a revival of forgetting. 
and you propose that whenever we want to store information, we should be able to give that information a date until which we want the information to be stored. Uh, talk to us about that. You know, if the problem is that we humans are used to a world in which forgetting is easy and remembering is hard, then maybe we should not change ourselves, but change the digital tools that surround us to make it easier for us that these digital tools too forget. And today it's extremely costly and time consuming to delete information. Take a, a, a digital camera. Uh, if you connect a digital camera to your computer, you have two options. Upload all the photographs on a digital camera or upload only those pictures that you want to have remembered. And almost all of us just by default pick upload all of the photographs because we don't want to spend the time to look at each and every photograph and to decide whether we want to keep it or whether we want to throw it away. Not even a two or three second it takes. But if we could make this remembering just a little more time consuming, just a little more costly, and to forgetting just a little easier, perhaps many of us would reconsider and throw away the access information, the, the, the information that they no longer need. If we make it easy for them, if we make it straightforward. So that's why I advocate for revival of forgetting. One way is expiration dates for information. That is whenever we store information, whether it's an image or a document, we add a date to it. When the date's reached, the information is being deleted. I don't care when that date is in the future. Everybody of us can set the date individually to whatever they like for whatever piece of information they have. They want to keep an image for the next 500 years, they can do that. If they want to keep a document for only two weeks, they should be able to do that as well. Everybody should be able to change the expiration date after the fact if they come to the conclusion that they want to hold on to a, an image for longer or uh, want to destroy a document earlier. That should be fine too. But what I want is that we have to enter an expiration date when we store some information much as we have to enter a file name uh, and we have to decide where on our hard disk we want to store that information. Because by having to enter an expiration date, we remind ourselves that information is not timeless, that most information is linked to a particular context in time and therefore over time loses its value and its importance. And that there comes a point in time where there is no, that, that information is no more relevant. And, and that's a good time to get rid of that information. And an expiration date would help us do that. If I may, I'd like to add a, I'd like to add another version of the revival of forgetting, which is what I call the digital shoebox in the attic. So one of the problems that we have today is that all of our digital storage is easily accessible on our computer. Um, we just type in a couple of words and all the, the past images and documents pop up. That's very different from the analog world where we could hold on to, let's say, images or letters or diaries, but we could put them in a box and store them up in the attic. So they would take some time and take some effort some deliberate effort to go up in the attic and to retrieve them. Maybe we should have the same deliberate effort um, in order to retrieve our digital uh, uh, artifacts, our digital memories, because then we wouldn't accidentally stumble over them. We would only find them when we actually uh, want to spend the time to, to look for them. So if we had an external hard disk and put them up in the attic, that would be sufficient uh, because that would require us to go up in the attic, take the hard disk down and connect it. And, and that would require a deliberate choice 
um, and we wouldn't accidentally stumble over our past all the time. Uh, and therefore, by and large, uh, in, in practical terms, would still have forgetting with us. That would be a revival of forgetting in the digital age, uh, in an age in which our digital artifacts, by default, normally don't forget anymore. Mm -hmm. Is it technically possible? Yes. Very easy so. In fact, there is a number of um, internet companies that are already offering something like that, an expiration date of sorts. There's a company called Drop.io that offers a service much like Flickr um, where you can upload um, photos or documents uh, for others to see, but you can enter an expiration date, and when the expiration date has been reached, that image or document is automatically deleted. Uh, that's a great first step. There is a similar uh, possibility uh, for search engines. Uh, the search engine ask.com has a button. When you click the button, uh, the past search history, the, the search terms that you used in the past are being deleted. That Therefore, uh, they're, they're expired. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, interest, it seems to me, on the commercial side to already implement expiration dates. And I uh, would like to see expiration dates uh, being more widespread, obviously, but I don't see a technical reason why they shouldn't. How do other researchers uh, in this field uh, respond to this proposal? I have had a lot of positive responses all around the world, not just from the researchers, but also from the users, uh, from commercial companies, um, but also from uh, policymakers. So, um, for example, in the two very well-known high-ranking uh, academic journals, Science in the United States and Nature in the United Kingdom, they both reviewed my book and very favorably so. So I think the academic community is uh, supportive. Um, the German uh, Minister of the Interior um, has just announced a new net policy of the Federal Republic of Germany in June of 2010, the core element of which is uh, expiration dates for information, for all information shared on social networking uh, platforms. That's a very positive step as well, and I, uh, I think the, the policymakers are coming around to that idea as well. What we need is now um, almost a movement. Um, there's a movement already in place for expiration dates for information in Argentina. There are lawmakers in Massachusetts in the United States who push for expiration dates for transaction information. I think it's happening all over. Um, the New York Times magazine had a big feature story in it just a few weeks ago. Uh, I think we are at the cusp of uh, a global movement um, that includes users, policymakers, commercial companies that realize that if we want to move ahead and advance in the digital age, in an age in which we ought to share information as much as possible, we should be able to do that but expiration dates enables us that uh, by sharing information, we can also ensure that that information eventually is becoming as being forgotten. If nothing is done about it, and if more such incidents are reported where people have suffered due to digital remembering, do you think that our attitude towards the internet will change? Well... If nothing is done, and if we continue down the path of digital remembering, my fear is that we either end up in a world in which we, as we realize the danger of digital memory, we begin to self-censor, and therefore we deprive each other of the tremendous wealth and opportunity of sharing information online, or as we begin to realize 
the importance of forgetting and the inability to achieve forgetting in a digital age anymore, um, we then move to a cognitive adjustment of sorts, especially among the digital natives, that is even more troubling than too much reliance on uh, digital memory. And that digital adjustment might be to totally disregard our past, to totally disregard any digital memories. Um, this might happen when we realize, when people realize that digital memories that we have are not necessarily true, are not necessarily accurate and authentic because they can be faked and falsified relatively easily. And as people remember, realize that, as people realize that the digital memories that they have might not actually be true, might not be authentic, they might begin to disregard all digital memory and disregard the past completely and only live in the present. Let me give you a very simple example. If we today upload a digital image from our mobile phones or smartphones to Flickr or Facebook, the people who own Flickr or Facebook, theoretically speaking, technically speaking, can change the image we uploaded. They can alter the image. They can include or exclude a person. And when we go back to that image later on, um, we might find it surprising that a, a person has vanished from the image, but our, our own memory might not be that clear anymore, and, and we might initially believe the digital image until we realize that all digital images can be falsified. And then we lose complete trust, uh, or we lose trust completely in the digital memory uh, that surrounds us. Uh, this, is not, this is not science fiction. There are companies out there in the United States today that uh, specialize on deleting people out of photographs. Um, they make money by deleting and retouching um, uh, people uh, out of photographs, uh, uh, you know, uh, who have, who are no, no longer, um, who others want, don't want to remember uh, anymore. So people who broke up with each other, relationships that ended, people who divorced each other, uh, send their images to this company so that their former husbands or wives are being deleted out of these digital pictures. What we are doing is we are falsifying uh, our past. And if this becomes incredibly widespread, how can we believe in the past at all? And so what we really need to do is to take a, a hard second look at digital forgetting and digital remembering and how important it is that we, can, we react to this challenge and that we emphasize the importance of human remembering and human forgetting and we de-emphasize what the digital tools can do for us. Have I missed anything important on this subject that you would like to highlight uh, before we finish? Second uh, very important challenge uh, that I see uh, that we might be exposed to uh, with digital remembering um, is what I associate with time. Because forgetting plays a very important role uh, in our ability to act in time. Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian short story writer, um, had a wonderful short story about a person who, after an accident, can no longer forget. And this person remembers everything of his past in excruciating detail, including every decision that he took 
that was incorrect, every mistake that he made. And Borges writes that the problem is that this person has no ability to see beyond the trees, to realize that he is in a forest, to generalize, to abstract, to go beyond the details to some generalizable rule. Uh, we know a little bit about this situation beyond Borges' fiction uh, through scientific studies that have been done uh, about a handful of people who have difficulties forgetting, who can remember pretty much everything uh, that happened to them over the last 30 years, including things like when they woke up, uh, who called them uh, at a particular day, what they ate, uh, what was on television, and so on and so forth. What these people tell us, by and large, is that this perfect comprehensive memory that they have is not a blessing, it's a curse. It's a curse because they remember all of their mistakes. They may remember all of their failures, all of their difficulties in life, and that makes them hesitant to decide and to act in the present and to look into the future. They are tethered to an ever more detailed past rather than being able to think and project themselves in the future. Uh, and they see this, therefore, as a curse. And if we surround ourselves with too many digital tools that remember everything that surrounds us all the time, we might end up like these people who cannot forget and who are inundated with um, memories of the failures of their past. Professor Victor Meyer Schwinberger, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you and goodbye.